I feel a lot of times in organizations when they approach diversity and inclusion, they approach it like a feel-good activity and they don't approach it like a business problem. So they don't approach it strategically. They don't approach it with business strategies and action plans. You know, they're, they're approaching this like um, we're just going to hold hands, talk in a conference room, and things are going to get better. Um, and that is, that is not a winning strategy for, for diversity. Um, I, will, I will promise you that. So, you know, when I talk about conspiring for good, it's really um, taking the same kind of strategic stance that you would on a, on a really tough um, business problem. Um, that's embedded in your organization. You know, it's really cre creating a, um, you know, a strategic um, vision. It's creating political allyship. It's having the meeting before the meeting, getting people on your side. It's selling your vision in the hallway, uh, in the bathroom, on the golf course, wherever it is that it needs to yeah. happen. You know, it's, um, it's getting money. It's getting organized, doing focus groups. It's getting data. It's, it's all of those pieces. And it's really kind of building your, building your case, building your business, building your plan for how you're going to make this change come about. Good morning. Good day. Or good evening. And welcome to 54 Lights. On July 27, 2004, a lesser-known senator from Illinois took to the stage at the Democratic National Convention in Boston. As the keynote speaker, he delivered a rousing speech that catapulted him onto the national, and dare I say, international stage. Many believe that it was in that moment, that speech, where seeds were planted for unprecedented change in America. Four years later, that same senator would become the 44th president of the United States and the first black man ever to lead the country. His leadership, example, and impact would change the world. Now his story and that of his remarkable wife are not of this show, for they are for another show, another day, and another time. For now, I'd like to pause on the moment, that relative nugget in time, the speech, when the spotlight shone brightly and things changed. When I say moment, of course, I'm figuratively speaking of those incremental incidents that change history. I'm compelled to do this because societal progress isn't one overnight. It takes an idea to be planted, then cultivated, and then, over time, institutionalized. If you doubt that, remember that despite the election of the first black president in 2008, the U.S. is far from easing racial tensions. Case in point, the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmed Aubrey in recent days. These were two key moments that played out over a relatively short period of time. One famously, of course, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Their tragic deaths have sparked off a wave of revolt 
and seemed to be the touching off point for another sea change in America. One that appears to be forcing a measure of equality to actually take root. Moments of violence, moments of injustice have led to moments of tragedy and moments of sadness. And then have laid way for moments of anger and revolt. Hopefully this will all culminate into moments of true institutionalized change. Now, as you listen to today's episode and hear our guest unpack her life and her circumstance, her moments, if you will, think of the broader context we're living through. It's a pivotal time that's been brought on by a series of events some which are tragic, some which are triumphant. My next guest is not giving the next keynote speech at the political convention, nor is she in the political arena at all. But that doesn't mean she's not an important part of the sea change that's happening in the world. Her stage is the boardroom. Her impact, while felt regionally, will spread far and wide. She's an outspoken voice who's compassionate but combative, ready to challenge the status quo and force change within her firm and her community. Each day presents her with choices that she turns into steps towards equality, be they racial or gender-based. She's skilled at creating the conditions for progress, creating moments through which people of color can find agency. My name is Kondwani Mwase, and the next episode is Outspoken, featuring Tiana Conley. Tiana is the VP of Global Serial at Kellogg's. She's brave, bold, and unapologetically honest. I met Tiana through a social media post where she honored the life of Ahmed Abri. Her post, like her character, was compassionate, precise, and outspoken. Sure. My name is Tiana Conley. Um, okay. I don't use my middle name too often. Okay. So do you, do you want to disclose it or that we're not going to go there? Tiana Jasmine Conley. Jasmine, okay. Um, and I'm I, assuming you do not ever go by Jasmine, but is there ever a, an opportunity where you'd go by Jasmine? No. <laughs> where did Tiana come from? The name itself? And then maybe if you can tell me where you came from, the, your family background. Sure. Um, well, my name, uh, as I understand it, so Tiana is a uh, technically a Russian name, and it means princess. Um, fitting because Tiana is also a name of a Disney princess, and I guess my interesting fact um, with my middle name, Jasmine, is also a Disney princess name. So I have two Disney princess names, um, which having a daughter is kind of mind-blowing for her. Um, I mean, not that my son's not impressed, but it's probably more impressive to my daughter. In terms of... Um, where am I from? So uh, I'm American born from the suburbs of Chicago. And um, in terms of my origin, I am 
first generation American born. My mom is uh, an immigrant from the Philippines. She was born in Manila. And my dad is African American from uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. For the Philippines, because I'm curious, and this is, again, this is a bit of what I do. How much does that inform your cultural experience like at home are you do you uh embrace the filipino um um, background so when my mom came over to the united states um it was a really interesting time it was the late 60s uh anti-asian sentiment was high and so the desire to acculturate was high so it's very interesting um and and like a lot of Filipinos of my generation, um, I don't actually speak the language, and my mom has no accent. So while my grandmother had like a very strong, very strong Filipino accent, uh, my mom has no accent, and then I don't retain the language. So a lot of people of my generation didn't either. Um, So many understand, a lot of people don't speak. I don't speak or understand, which is devastating to me. So it's a, it's one of my lifelong goals to work on it. Um, but culturally, I'm close to the culture. So, you know, I eat Filipino food and um, cook Filipino food. And, you know, I'm close from a cultural alignment standpoint, um, close to the culture, but also really close to Black culture too. And, um, you know, it was definitely... Um, it's definitely a dichotomy because you're two things and people want you to align to one thing. Right. And so you're always kind of either too much of this, too much of that, or not enough of this or not enough of that. For sure. For sure. So I I think, I think that's a really, really good point. And it, it provides an interesting segue about, you know, putting people into boxes, right? So I will try and ask you to put yourself in a box and say, if we turn the page now and say, from a professional perspective, what do you consider to be the, the, like the singular label you would put on yourself? Like, what is your profession? Well, I'm a marketer. Um, <laughs> and I've been um, practicing as a marketer for the majority of my career. But it's very interesting because I'm not a marketer by training. I actually went to school for engineering. But I think as I, as I kind of went through my studies and kind of really understood what um, chemical engineers did in practicality. I always had a sensibility about myself that I'm like, hey, I'm not sure I want to spend my entire career like in a lab or in, you know, a hard hat and steel toe boots. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I made a switch pretty early on, like one or two years into my career, um, into marketing just kind of as a, a stint, a broadening stint. And, uh, and that worked out pretty well um, 18 years later. Yeah, that's amazing. So if had marketing not been the path of, uh, do you think you would have gone into chemical engineering or do you think you would have been going, you would have found a different path? You know, I really value having a technical background. Um, I think it's been a real advantage as a marketer because I understand math. I think really to be a great, great in brand management or general management, you really have to have a multidisciplinary understanding and approach. So for me, I think it's always been a real competitive advantage mm-hmm. and a way to really connect with and understand um, other functions and how things happen and 
production and manufacturing and um, innovation. So you really have used your history um, from, from an educational perspective to inform what you're doing now. Um, you are a woman of color, and I think statistically that is almost the worst position to be in in the world because you are, you, you are uh, the recipient of a lot of discrimination. So, uh, you know, I, I've got to ask you a couple of different questions about that, but maybe the first one is, through your career, I'm sure you've had to deal with a lot of choices that you've had to make to risk going into this field or that. How has, how has your um, history, both your educational and your cultural one, informed the risks that you've taken as a woman of color? Sure. Um, well, I think that, um, I think that the values that come from the perspective of being in a position in the bottom of society, because as a, a black woman, a woman of color, um, you, you are in the bottom rung of society, truly. Um, and my mom always told me, you know, you have, you have multiple strikes against you you know, at least two, and you can start naming other strikes if you want. So I think that, you know, both her and my dad kind of always told me, and, and I think what a lot of us know and are, are taught is, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half as far. And I think it instilled um, a set, you know, a set of values around, I think, a work ethic that I always wanted to, to have. Um, but I think it also created a sense of um, desire for justice in me as well, because I, I experienced injustice, um, you know, so, so early in my life, as many well, of us uh, do. Towards yourself specifically? Well, well, definitely. I mean, you, you probably, you first experience it within the context of yourself, because you just you know, as a little kid, you're going about your life and then you're wondering, okay, well, why is this thing that's not fair happening to me? Mm. Uh, and there's really no logical explanation. And then, uh, and then, then you kind of have that rude awakening that it's because it's something that you have no control over. It, it, and the strength to go through those, do you think that that came from your parents or, I'm sorry, I forgot to ask you before, are you a only child or are you a, um, um, do you have siblings? We're a family of girls, so I have, I have a younger sister from the same set of sibling or same set of, set of parents, and then my I have an older half sister from my dad's first marriage. So, um, but the interesting thing is, my older sister is six years older, and my younger sister is six years younger. <laughs> so you're bang, so, bang in the middle, okay? But in in an odd way, because my my older sister grew up. Um, sometimes in her mother's household and sometimes in our household that I had the experience of being uh, a younger sister, an only child before my sister came, um, and an older sister. So I, I almost played all the roles. That's funny. You get different perspectives for sure. And, and with a gap like six years, it's, it's, you do get that time to be really, quote unquote, alone or really, really immersed in being a big sister. Um, if I were to ask your two sisters uh, on both ends and even your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Here it comes. 
what would they say like are you are you an outlier in the family or are you um are you just a family of 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 really tough uh tough ladies or you know what would they say about you in terms of the toughness to deal with these things oh i am for sure an oddball so um (laughs) i'm an oddball and an outlier i mean i think that um i think that i am for sure outspoken um, and I think anyone in my family, close nuclear family or extended, would say that about me. Um, and I think that uh, my mom and dad would probably go back to examples of stories when I was young um, and able to to even articulate at a very young age um, what I wanted for myself or you know what I wanted out of life. So um, I, I think that's just how I was born. Um, and it, it's very interesting. Both of my parents are very, very um, independent, strong-willed, you know, fiery people. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like I got both of what they have channeled into me. <laughs> it's, it's helped make you uh, feel that fire, the outspoken one then. So if I use that word outspoken, and we talked a little bit about this before a, a couple of days ago when we spoke, which is, there is a cost that comes with people who are outspoken. You know, if you're not a wallflower, you know, there's going to be lumps, I think was the word that you had used. You're going to take some lumps. So how, has, how have you been able to navigate, because you've done quite well in your career, how, how have you been able to navigate being outspoken as well as maybe with what I would assume has to be some diplomacy to get where you are? Absolutely. It's a great question. I, I have a, a mentor and she, I was venting about that very thing one day and she looked at me and she said, Tiana, you're a truth teller and truth tellers take their lumps. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, that's powerful. Um, and so true. And I think that my ability to cope with and recognize that and embrace it has evolved as I have grown over time. And my, my comfort level with that has evolved over time. So I think where I found myself at the beginning of my career was um, battling the tendency to want to articulate my truth. Uh-huh. Um, holding it, holding back. Absolutely. Wanting to say, this seems crazy. I think we should do that. Um, or, <laughs> or, you know, this is what I see. The activity we seem to be doing seems counterproductive to that um, or whatever it is. Um, and so I think I would find myself really kind of fighting, wanting to coalesce or jive or fit within the existing culture of either the organization or the department mm-hmm. I was in. And, and having to kind of fight myself to kind of stay PC. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that was exhausting and tiring to kind of do that self-censoring. Um, and, and, and doing that fighting uh, on one hand or just learning it out on the other hand and then just kind of getting in trouble for saying what I had to say. But then it had to be said and then people would kind of, I think kind of what enabled me to grow is that when I would have those kind of outbursts and people would be like, oh my God, I was thinking that too. And um, so I would definitely kind of get in trouble for not necessarily saying the most delicate or politically correct thing. But then what I noticed was that everybody would say, I was thinking that too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I started to kind of gain this reputation for <laughs> everyone's thinking it, but she'll say it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but ultimately when I said it, people would always come up and affirm I was thinking that too, or, oh my gosh, that was so brave of you to say that. Right. And right. I think that's what fueled me to get, um, more courage to be more consistent and just owning that over time. And I think turn that liability of just saying my truth into this is who I am and I'm going to speak my truth and I'm okay with you not being okay with that. Um, And if there's a repercussion that comes along with that, that's fine, but I'd rather be authentic and have a negative repercussion than be inauthentic and um, have that negative, then live with that negative repercussion of looking at myself in the mirror every day and not recognizing who I see. Right, right. Now that um, that decision, I suppose, to, to sort of to, to be authentic, to, to embrace the authenticity of you, was it a series of <laughs> awkward uh, meetings where that sort of played itself out? Or was this, a, did you have a crossroads of sorts where you sat down with your mentor and you know, they guided you to do this or was it, did it happen once or was this gradual over time? I think it was gradual over time, but I think that my bravery grew as um, maybe my roles grew and definitely as I was navigating in particular changes from one or one company or organization to the next. Mm-hmm. So as I was searching and making moves from one organization to the next organization that I wanted to land in a place where it was okay to be who I am. And that if um, it wasn't okay to be who I was, where I landed, that I didn't want to be there. And that that was a really good screening for me. So, um, you know, I think early in my career when I went on interviews, um, whether it was for an internal role or an external role, I would always approach an interview like, I want to get this job. And I think as I've grown over time, I approach an interview like, I want to get this job, but I also want to understand, is this the place for me? And is this a place in an environment where I can thrive and a place in an environment where stylistically I feel I'll be welcomed, embraced, and I can thrive. Uh, do you have mentees? And is that the, the one piece of advice you would give them? Yes, I have. Yes, I am a mentor to other people. Yeah. And I would say I'm not a big blanket advice person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a mother as well. And kind of the philosophy that I apply to parenting, I think, applies to mentees, not that they're my children or um, not that it's denigrating in any form. It's just that I kind of feel like my children are two different people. And so I kind of have to meet them where they are. And so when I approach mentees, I kind of try to meet people where they are and, and what their particular need is. And so I try to treat everyone like an individual in an individual situation um, and give them the best advice for their particular situation. situation. I'm sure you've had a many different uh, things sort of come up in your career where you've had to look at it and do a, make a very, very calculated decision as to whether to press forward with, with your authentic self. I'm wondering, how does that, how does that 
calculation go? Or are you always, always outspoken and saying, hey, the lumps are coming, I'll just take them as they come? For certain, um, it is risky. It's riskier because I'm black, because when people look at me physically, I don't look Asian. So when they see me, they see a black person, um, even though I'm half Asian. So, and I do think just generally speaking that risks are more expensive for black people than non-black people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, as just a general rule, Um, whether it's professionally or in life. And I think all we have to do is look at current events to see that that's true. So in terms of how I approach my career, um, yes, I mean, I do have to take calculated risks. I'm, I'm also a single mom and responsible for supporting two young children. So I need to be gainfully employed. And so it's, it's not, it would not be a good look for me to lose my job um, and my employment status because I need to um, you know, support my family. So, so yes, I mean, I do have to be careful with the type of risks that I take or calculated, I guess, and the types of risks that I take. But, you know, sometimes those risks are worth it if it's, if sometimes it plays out in the context of a broader, um, greater good. So a, a good example of that is an organization that I was part of, and they were really having some issues around diversity and inclusion and some real issues with, with frankly, just um, attracting and retaining diverse talent, which is not necessarily unique to that organization, yeah. but they were having probably a, a disproportionate number of issues in that space um, around representation and some real challenges culturally. Um, and at the time, and, and unfortunately this is true in most roles I'm in, I was a person in a senior role, a diverse person, <laughs> the person, <laughs> the person of diversity in a role, right? So, you know, like for example, in my current company, I am the senior ranking um, African American in marketing in the U.S. Right, woman, man, whatever. Right, so I'm finding myself increasingly being that person, and so I have to look at myself and say, hey, if it is important to me, which it is, to um, to see more diversity in our workforce and more um, diversity and inclusion reflected in our marketing, um, both black and 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 really across the board multiculturally. If I am not driving the conversation, if I'm not forcing the issue, no one else is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because if it wasn't happening before I got there, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it falls on your shoulders, really. <laughs> if I'm not asking the question as a, you know, as a, you know, as a, a black woman, um, the question, for damn sure no one else is asking. Yeah. The, okay? yeah. Chances are so, it's not being asked. Yeah. Correct. So that is a risky, that's a risky proposition. And why is that a risky proposition? Because that makes people hella uncomfortable. And when you start poking around and asking people uncomfortable questions that they don't have um, any kind of appropriate answer to, that makes people very uncomfortable. Um, And you start to um, draw red circles around issues in the organization that are sometimes systemic 
but in sometimes potentially malicious or intentional mm-hmm. or have liabilities or implications for the company, that makes people very unhappy, particularly people who are very happy, very content with the way things are. Yeah, the status quo has um, worked. Yeah. Yes. But but frankly, they may not want to see diversity and inclusion um, advanced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just true. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if... Um, if they did, it probably would exist. Yeah, by, by that time. So it's interesting because, yeah, you, you become the, the poster child for that because not only are you in that spot, but I was, I was you know, kind of joking before. I was saying you, you check a lot of boxes, because, but you do. You know, you're, you're a person of color and you're a woman. So the, then you become, you know, sort of, and you're, you're a senior person, um, not in age, but in, in, in um, position. We sure, met, sure. No, no. Well, we, trust <laughs> me, you're not, you're not old. But the question that I was going to ask you is, we talked about this a little bit before, about you had used this phrase, cons- um, uh, conspire, uh, conspire for good. And it feels like what you were just talking about is just that, is conspiring for the advancement of an organization, of a, um, you know, a, a company to now open their doors and be a bit more inclusive and, and diverse. Is that the case? Is that what conspiring for good means to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely. It's hard for people to do the right thing. And it is difficult to unseat the status quo. And if it was easy to do, I think people would do it. Um, And it is difficult to change hearts and minds. And so I feel a lot of times in organizations when they approach diversity and inclusion, they approach it like a feel-good activity. Mm-hmm. Or like um, a kumbaya hand-holding singing exercise. And they don't approach it like a business problem. So they don't approach it strategically. They don't approach it with measures and numerics. Um, they don't approach it with um, business strategies and action plans. You know, they're, they're approaching this like um, we're just going to hold hands, talk in a conference room, and things are going to get better. Um, and that is... That is not a winning um, strategy for for diversity. I use the word cons- conspire because you, you do have to you know you have to be tricky, right? Um, if you just tell people outright that I'm here to kind of change things, um, it invokes a lot of fear. I would say the same way in society, which is why we probably haven't progressed a lot in society either. I, I would I would say for sure, for sure. But you know, it, it's really interesting. Um, I've got a couple more questions on this. Um, one being, you know, I actually did write down this, uh, uh, like a really stupid question about vulnerability and how how you do this dance with being vulnerable. Because one of the things that's really interesting about everything that you've said is you are doing it while being this um, ex- senior executive. I don't see that many people taking that many risks in the positions that you are. Am I mistaken there? Or in your opinion, what, what, like, what does that landscape look like? Um, I think you're right. I mean, I think that it's interesting because um, I recently participated in a leadership program here in Chicago where I'm based um, with the Chicago Urban League and um, the leadership program is called Impact. So it's like 35, roughly 35 people um, top le- black leaders from around the city, all different industries. We come together and we basically have learning 
modules in, in conjunction with the University of Chicago um, Booth School of Business. And, and then different leaders, um, civic leaders from around, um, around the city kind of come talk and we, we kind of work on leadership modules. And um, it works a lot like business school, except it's all black people, which is kind of phenomenal, mm -hmm. actually. Um, and, and we talk about this very subject, which is like, why, um, where are we on our journey and our continuum in terms of our bravery and our ability to speak out? Because some of us are like living on the edge and we're ready to like jump off the cliff. Yeah. And then others of us are like so fearful that we can even speak up. Yeah. Um, and kind of where I, how do I personally internalize that is that everybody, um, everybody is on a journey. And I'm talking specifically about black people now. We are all on a journey. We have all been traumatized throughout our entire life. I would say we've been traumatized since before we were born. And all you have to really look at is um, statistics around uh, adoption, because you know that um, we've been discriminated against and judged before we were even born. If you look at um, the cost to adopt a baby, it's like $17,000 to adopt a black baby and like $34,000 to adopt a white baby. So before we're even born, um, a value has been kind of placed in our life that we are worth less in society. So we're, we're essentially being judged since um, before we come out of the womb. And that magnifies over time. So we're all kind of working through and dealing with trauma um, in every facet of our life over time, no matter how awesome or excellent we are. And the fact that we even reach a level of excellence is practically a miracle, but we do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So then once you're there, um, how comfortable you are in taking that risk, I think really just boils down to where you are in your journey. And for me, I've just had you know, a set of circumstances around my life that personally led me to say, I'm ready to kind of step out on that, in that space and take those risks. Um, and I think it's because I have really ultimate clarity in what my life is about. Um, and, and what my life is about is um, advancing um, the equality agenda for black people. And why do I say that? Because I'm half Asian. So that's kind of weird, right? Mm -hmm. um, that I would say that. But because I feel that um, black people occupy the bottom tier of society. Mm -hmm. So that if we can advance the agenda for black people, that all ships will lift and Every, rise uh, together. Yeah. So if we, can, if we can make it so that it's safe um, for black people to live and black people have the right to live and black people reach equality, everyone will achieve equality. Um, and that's just my mindset. And so everything in my life is going against that and I, I'll die trying to achieve that. Um, and so I'm not afraid to take risks and taking myself there. And if I can't feel confident that I'm working towards that in every aspect of my life, whether it's what I choose to pursue professionally and feel that I'm going after that in how I push the organization to recruit or how I push the organization to go after business strategies and key consumer cohorts in our marketing practices, um, what I do in my personal life and the organizations that I support or how I raise my kids, then, my, then I, I know that all of those aspects of my life are congruent. And so I'm 100% confident in stepping out on that. Um, but everyone is not necessarily sure where they are in their life. I think they'll get there, but they're just not there yet. I, I, I'm gonna get to a rapid fire uh, section really, really soon. But I have to ask this question. 
nothing about my peripheral view of you from, from this length historically speaks to this uh, level of empathy because your schooling was in engineering, uh, you, the marketing background, even the way you talk about the conspiracy for good, it's, it's um, remarkably analytical and very um, logical, like a, a linear, right? And so I'm understanding why you're so good and why you're in the professional place that you are. But there's this, there's this bone of compassion, of empathy, I'll call it, that is emanating. And I'm wondering where that's coming from. Oh my goodness, that's such a great question. Um, I, I have no idea, but I just have such a heart for justice. I don't know... I don't know where that comes from, to be honest. I don't know if it's just, you know, the fact that my grandmother had never had more than, you know, an elementary high school level education. She never knew how to drive, but she was able to kind of strive and kind of work the American dream, um, you know, for her kids. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's the personal discrimination that I experience or witness on behalf of others, but I've just always had uh, a heart for justice. I've, I've done, uh, I've gone on a mission to, um, in India to work with girls that have been rescued from sex slavery. Mm. So like nothing more hurts my heart than people who are, um, marginalized in society to, um, to be walked all over um, and to not have a voice. And so, you know, just if I'm able to have a voice and lend that voice in supporting other people, like that's just, I just bleed for that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. To provide some additional context to this conversation, I decided to sit down with my daughter and get her brief thoughts on what gender and race equality might mean for a young person of color. So Anika, thanks for joining. As you know, I recently sat down with a black woman who's an executive at a large company in the United States. She works in business, uh, but outside of that, she's working towards creating a better future for young people um, and all people, whether they be uh, black people, Asian people, white people, and so on, um, of both genders. So before I sort of ask you about her work and what, what that means to you, I just want to get uh, the audience to know, how old are you? I'm 12. Okay, perfect. And, um, you know, do you think that it's important to see women of color in positions of leadership? You always hear about those stories about how um, people are being treated unfairly because of their race, their skin color, their gender, all that. And so it's good to hear that people have made it that far despite all the stuff that they've had to go through. Do you think that your classmates, uh, whether they're girls or boys, would think the same way you're, you do? I really don't think many of my classmates give it much thought, to be honest. I don't have many... Uh, people of color in my class anyways. Okay. What do you want to be when you grow up? I know you've, I've asked you this before and you've changed a few times, but what are you looking to do? Um, I don't know if this is what I want to be, but I've always wanted to try chemistry. Mm. 
and and directing. Do you think you'll it'll be easy for you to get there? Either to Probably be a chemist. Not. Okay, why do you say that? I don't know. I feel like everybody's journey has obstacles. So I'd expect mine to have some too. Is there politics in your future? Nope. Does ambition win over destiny? Yes. Can you explain that? I mean, I think if we subscribe to that as black people, we and would- we're done. <laughs> We'd all be dead, yeah, you know. Dead. So I'm, I'm saying that just the pure ambition of our spirits is what you know fuels our greatness. What is your guilty pleasure? Ooh. Um. Besides gummy worms, um. <laughs> uh, allowing myself some time to. Surf on social media, and also I really like Candy Crush. If you have uh, two weeks, uh, go anywhere in the world post Corona. So we're past all the Corona business. Um, there's a vaccine that doesn't exist anymore. Whatever, um, you can go anywhere in the world. Where are you going? When this is all over, I'm taking my kids on. I'm taking them on a crazy Disney experience. Like we, we, we have been going every year for the last couple of years, and and this year we're skipping. But we're we're going, we're doing it all. We're doing Toy Story Land. We're doing you know Star Wars Land. We're we're doing tea with the princesses. We're doing it all. We're doing everything Disney all all day every day. In the movie about your life. Who is Tiana? Who's cast? Carrie Washington. Just because I like her, because I like her, and I wish. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Um, and then the last question of the interview: uh, What's the name of the book or the movie about your life? Oh, that's a good one. Ooh. Now you're now you're trying to stop me. I, I guess um I guess it's uh I guess it's truth truth tellers take their lumps. So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in today's show be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninval. If you like what you've heard, there's more. 
follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, Crowd54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening.